Let's go to uh, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. I love that I get this text. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing their uh, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although... His eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You can see now why I wore this shirt today. His, um, yeah, that was funny. Uh, it's because it's um, there's a lot of glory that's going on here <laughs> that we're going to get to talk about. Actually, I, it was a mistake. I realized that I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, worn this shirt in a long time when I looked in my closet and that was it. So, um, <laughs> what, what we have going on here in Acts, basically, Acts is written like a TV series. It's like a Netflix series. You know what I mean? Where you've got like multiple, uh, narratives, uh, with n- multiple characters kind of paralleling and going on side by side. And so we've been introduced to this guy, uh, Saul, before. We saw him back in 7, uh, 8. And, um, and then it flipped the narrative to this dude named Philip, which is where we've been the last couple of weeks. And we've seen some of Philip's adventures. Now this thing is going to come back to this guy, uh, Saul. And we're going to get um, uh, another piece of uh, what this guy's about and his life. We talked a few weeks ago about this fact, that um, nobody is too far gone for God. Do you believe that? Nobody is too far gone for God. We all have these people in our lives right now that we look at and go, there is no way this person will ever be a lover of Christ. And it's simply not true. And today we get to witness the reality that nobody is too far gone for God. In this guy, Saul, we find Saul here fresh off the heels of a successful murder against Stephen, the first martyr of the church of many to come throughout history, culminating in basically panic and chaos throughout the church, sending the church packing. They went scattering for their safety and their freedom and their lives. Um, the agenda, basically, of the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders against the church is out of the bag. Like, it's no longer a secret. It's no longer going on behind closed doors. It's just public. And we find Saul here uh, right in the thick of it, and he's on a roll. There's some momentum going right now, and he doesn't want to lose his momentum. And we see here in verses 1 and 2 that Paul was not happy with just clearing Christians out of Jerusalem. Like that wasn't enough for him. We find that he will only be happy once he rids the world of Christians. Do you see that here? I mean, this dude is willing to travel. This guy's willing to take trips. He's willing to go out of his way to exterminate Christians. 
doesn't want them anywhere. I, I want us to understand this as we look at this text. We're not just looking at a guy who doesn't like a movement. Okay? We're, we're looking at a lunatic. Even though he's smart and educated and calculated. We're looking at a fanatic. We're looking at a psychopath on a warpath against the church and against Christians. And then he asks for letters. And, and I guess if there's an upside to what this dude's doing, it's that he's at least willing to go through the proper channels with his psychoticness, you know? He's trying to be the most upright, law-abiding Christ-hater that he can possibly be. And we see here from what Saul says that this movement that he's hell-bent on exterminating has a name. It's called The Way. That's a cool name. When we started the um, the door uh, eight years ago, there was a point where we were thinking like of a name. We were like racking our minds like, what are we going to call this thing? And my mom would be like, The Way. I like The Way. And every time I would see her, she'd be like, I really like The Way. Like she was just constantly like, The Way is cool, you know? And it's like, yeah, it is. It's, it's super cool. Um, I, I, I love how minimal it is. For one, I love how minimal, unlike many churches' names, you and I all know churches that we can't even pronounce the titles of, right? Um, or, or, or just churches that are they're so long that no one can remember the name of the church they go to. I had a dude a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine actually, who started a house church in Portland. And he sent me the card when it was done, when they decided on the name. And uh, he, he sent me the card, and it was called Steadfast anchor gospel church. And I thought, you know what I mean? Like who calls their name that? Not only does a non-believer not know what that means, like you need a seminary degree to understand what it means, what it's talking about. I love the, the, the of course, the Catholic ones are the best. If we've got any Catholic people in here, I love you. But like you guys have the best long names, right? And um, do you remember Nacho Libre? You remember, you remember that name in, in Nacho Libre that they threw out? It was like the, the, the Oaxaca Parish Covenant of the Immaculate Heart Sisters Ladies Mountains of Guadalupe. <laughs> that's rad. And it's like real. Like that's why it's so funny is because they like, they'll, they'll put as much into it as they can. You know what I mean? Their whole statement of faith or whatever is, is in their title of their name. I love how, how this name here defines everything that they were about with two little three-letter words. Notice the definite article, the. Extremely important. The. What does the say? One. Singularity. They weren't called a way. They weren't called some way. They weren't called a good way or a better way. Right? They were called the way. As in the only one. It's exclusive. It means that there is not another way like it. And as difficult as it is, especially in this postmodern, relativistic, everything is true world that we find ourselves living in, people need to hear this or they will die in their sins. I cannot help to think but this name, the way alone is something that like majorly got to Paul. Paul is the one who calls himself later on most zealous 
for the law of God, the one who is most committed to performing and producing a righteousness of his own. This exclusive thinking that we see in the way is the only way. There is no other way. It is setting itself apart. It is, it is distinguishing itself from everything else that exists. And we live in a world right now, we live in a culture right now where there are no absolute truths. And that's so absolutely untrue. People are going to hell because of that untruth. And it is our job to point people to the truth. The salvation doctrine of the day, and actually it's age old, of the land that we live in today, is salvation through self-righteousness. It's salvation through works. To some degree or another, this is how people believe they will see God. I had another example of this this week. I don't know what's going on lately with chimney customers that have brain tumors, like at the end of their life, but I had another one Tuesday, me and Ty. We go to this guy's house. He can't even walk. He can't even talk. We're there to repair his chimney. And he makes it clear over and over again, like, the next time you come out here, like, I'm not going to be here. Like, I'm done. Like, this, this, it's over. And I could sense as I'm talking to this guy that um, there's a lot of pride. Like, this dude's a very proud man. He was a little bit contentious, a little bit argumentative. Like, he was very confident. And I just, I just got the sense that this dude probably didn't know the Lord. And so when me and Ty went back in to give this guy the invoice at the end of the job, um, we did our exchange, and I grabbed his hand to shake it, and I held it, and I said, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And I said, are you ready to go? And he said, no. He said, no. He said, uh, I've, I've got this to take care of. I've got that end to tie up. I've got things i got to do before people come in here and take over this mess. I'm not, I'm not really ready to go. It was all this stuff you had to do, you know. And I said, um, let me ask you another question. I said, do you know where you're going? And he said, excuse me? <laughs> oh, I'm serious. <laughs> and I said, do you know where you're going? Like when you leave this place. And he said, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And I said, so you know Jesus? And he said, well, yeah. Yeah, I know Jesus. I grew up a Catholic. But then he looked at me and leaned in. And he said, you have no idea how many people I have helped in my life become successful. What he was doing right there was showing me his hand. He was telling me the reason why... He knew he was going to, to heaven. And it had nothing to do with Jesus. This is the world that we live in, guys. People think on one level or another this very way. And they need to know the way. Or they will die in their sins. There is a way, one, and it has nothing to do with us. This message is what makes us Christian. And it is the Christian message. It is largely believed by many that the early church took on the name the way based on the words of Jesus. Makes sense. 
who referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Does anyone know the words that follow? No one comes to the Father but by me. If we are banking on ourselves in any way to get to the Father, then we are not going through Jesus to get to the Father. We will not get to the Father. Buddha's final words, his dying words, strive unceasingly. Jesus' dying words, it is finished. If it ain't true, we're in trouble. And so we see Saul drawing up these papers through the proper channel so that he can make the way no longer a way. You know? And so he goes on his way and he ends up meeting the way. See what I did there? Pretty clever. Look at 3 through 6 again. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. This is, um, this is what you might call a come-to-Jesus moment. Right? <laughs> First off, we have this light that shone around him from heaven. I just picture like this big UFO just like dropping onto his head. You know what I mean? Um, unfortunately, all, all I could think of this week was that, I'm sorry if you like this song, that stupid 70s song called Blinded by the Light. You know, that's the one I'm talking about. It's a horrible song. I felt like, like, like a, a minister of Satan was given to me to buffet me this week with that song. And now it's yours. You're welcome. Now you can go home singing it. This light that falls on Paul is, is, is or Saul is so powerful, it's so all-encompassing, that he falls over and he goes blind. But this is not something that we haven't seen before. We see this throughout our Scriptures. We know what this is, right? Paul is soon to know what this is. Because what's undoubtedly being described to us here by Luke is nothing short of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, on full display. This is why Moses, when he would go up to the hill and have uh, private briefings with Jehovah, would have to wear a mask to keep his face from burning off. You know, um, We see a preview in Matthew chapter 17 of the glorified Jesus. Remember that? The Mount of Transfiguration. Such a killer narrative. Um, because it's super funny. Because Peter makes everything really funny. Right? And we see, uh, we see kind of this, this private meeting. It's a, it's an exclusive meeting where he brings, um, Peter and James and John up the mountain with him, right? And they get up there and then two other dudes show up and everybody starts glowing and getting really bright, right? And Peter, bless his heart, he says, it's so funny. He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. Let me make some tents for you and Moses and Elijah. You know what I mean? Right before he gets plowed onto his face from the glory of Christ. It's so funny. But, but in that, um, in that preview, we have these words, um, like he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes were as white as light. 
a bright cloud overshadowed them. And Saul here is in the direct presence of the risen, glorified Savior. That's what he's experiencing. And the the problem is that the glory is too much. Saul saw God and was exposed to the glory of God, and it did a number on him. I mean, come on, we've all seen the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? We know that the glory of God is face melting, you know, eyeball searing, you know. How bright is it? Well, if we if we look at Acts 22, it tells us that we're told that the time that this went down was noon. Okay, which means that it would have been the lightest, brightest time of the day in the middle of the desert. And yet the light that Jesus brought with him was completely overwhelming. It completely swallowed the brightness of the sun. It made it disappear. Even the brightness and the power of the sun is no match against the glory of our Savior. The glory of God is simply and terrifyingly overwhelming. And Saul got overwhelmed by it that day. He tapped out. The next thing that we should take note of here is what Jesus says to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is an interesting statement. Seeing how Jesus wasn't physically present at any time on earth during Saul's shenanigans. Shenanigans. Knew I shouldn't use that word. (laughs) Who is it that Paul is persecuting? The church. What this tells us is that to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought to think about if you're hating on the church. We, we see this in other places like Matthew 25 where he says, as you uh, did this to the least of these, you did it to me. As you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. He's connecting himself with that which is his over and over again. Of course, our theology of the church tells us that, that Christ is the head of the body. We are in Him. He is in us. To persecute Christians, to persecute the church, is directly to persecute Christ. That's a sobering thought. Notice that Paul doesn't refute Jesus' comment. Right? He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't say something like, no, I haven't persecuted you. I don't even know you. I've never even met you before. Right? Saul knows in an instant that he's on the wrong team. Like the gig is up in a moment. Right here in one moment, Paul's worldview got demolished and rebuilt. This is a successful rebuke, right? I mean, look at his response. It's so funny, or it seems funny. Who who are you, Lord? (laughs) I used to think like he was answering his own question. You know what I mean? But he's not. Lord is many times used in many contexts in the New Testament for sir. Just, it's a reverent address. And he's being pretty respectful and pretty careful and pretty reverent right now because he's in the dirt. He's in the dirt. He's, on, he's, he's beat up. Now, some of the English translations that you might be using today are um, maybe not so up to date. Some of you might be using an older translation. 
that was um, that was translated out of the Textus Receptus. We have since uh, found uncovered older manuscripts that we now use for our newer English translations that sometimes will uh, add or usually remove a verse or a line or two. But there's one in here um, that I think is worth mentioning. So in, in other words, it's kind of like you guys are still listening to your music uh, on cassette tapes uh, instead of streaming it in high def. Um, so, but the mu- you can still hear the music that way. So um, there's this, this phrase in there. It's very interesting. Why do you kick against the goads? Or it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now, this is an old Greek expression that simply means, why are you fighting against something that's beating you? It's a great statement. Why are you fighting against something that's beating you? Why are you warring with something that is only always going to win? I don't know what the heck goads are, and uh, I didn't try to find out. Uh, pricks, they're pretty much exactly what they sound like. There's something sharp. There's something pointy. There's something that is going to hurt you. Jesus is basically saying, Saul, why are you injuring yourself? Like a moth. You ever watch the bugs sometimes on a front porch or a back porch? You know what I mean? They'll, they'll, they'll loop around a little bit and then bounce like off the light, like bonk their head off it. And then they'll just do another loop. And they could do that all night. It's kind of like that idea, right? It's so stupid. It's so silly and futile. And so it is with the man who decides to make war with God. It's futile. The man cannot win. I think it's worth noting here that Jesus calls Saul by name. Saul is not some unknown to Jesus. He's not some impersonal human being to Jesus, like he just was kind of looking across the earth for an apostle to the Gentiles and going, okay, you'll do. He's not a stranger to Jesus. Jesus knows him. Jesus knows him. He doesn't know about him. He knows him. What's going down is personal and planned as if Saul was made with all that he was and all that he had done for this very moment. It's interesting to think about the fact that God could have chosen anybody to be his Paul. He could have picked any number of better candidates living on the earth at the time to be his chosen instrument to the Gentile world. To be an apostle. To represent him. He could have chose anybody to write 13 of the 27 books that we have in our New Testaments. Scripture. And this is the guy that God wanted to choose. That's a cool deal. That tells us a lot about our God. The worst guy living at the time is the one that he picked. Not because God needed Paul, but because God, for some reason, wanted Paul. That's the miracle. What does this tell us about God? What does this reveal about his character? What does this tell us about his ability to save? And this is where it's going to get a little bit uncomfortable for some of you. Okay? Because we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna dive. I believe that a lot of you sitting out here today have an idea that God is wringing his hands in heaven, hoping that people will decide to pick him. And this is simply not at all how God describes himself in our scriptures. 
Just listen to this. God says to to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. And you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Guess who wrote that? The converted Saul. Now, there's a lot of implications in that text. You'll have to drive home with a lot of implications of that text if you're thinking about it. It's heavy, it's deep, it's hard. But what I do want to make sure you take away from that text is the sure and the glorious truth that we do not worship a God who is limited in any way by that which He's created. Is there any God-hater? Is there any God-ignorer? Is there any evildoer? Is there any atheist who is safe? It never mattered how far off Saul was into wickedness and wretchedness because he could never be far enough that the hand of God couldn't reach him. The conversion of Saul shows us yet once more that salvation comes as a result and work of God's goodness initiated towards us, not our goodness and work initiated towards him. This is where it's going to get a little harder. We do not give our hearts to Jesus. I don't even know what the heck that means. I wouldn't even know where to start. My heart is desperately wicked. I don't know how to handle it. Jesus gives us new hearts by the power of His Word being preached and proclaimed. That's how we're changed. When the truth of the gospel penetrates our hearts, when the power of God breaches the highest and thickest walls inside of us, it's game over. If God decides to have an encounter with us, it will end in unconditional surrender. And you know what? Praise God for that. Because I'm a stubborn fool. I praise God that He chooses to violate my hatred for Him. And when he does, resistance is futile. Because if his intention is to make you his, you cannot resist the grace that accompanies that intention. 
I'm sorry, but we cannot bump our will up against God's and come out ahead ever. It's a battle we cannot win. Years ago, I had a pastor that I really respected. I loved the guy. I learned a lot from the guy who used to say all the time, God is a gentleman. He'll never make you do something you're not willing to do. You ever heard that before? It sounds very gracious. It sounds very generous. But it's a horrible thought. At least for me. Because I'm all about that. I'm all about being willing to not do the things that I should. Every day. And so I take great comfort in knowing because of what my Bible tells me. That God is not a gentleman that refuses to impose His will on ours, but He is a jealous God who refuses to lose anything that belongs to Him. Just ask Paul. Or Saul. He knows. Jesus knocks him off his butt, and Paul's forever his. The end. It's great. I mean, do any of us have a problem with what God has done here to Saul? We wouldn't, would we? (laughs) This should cause praise and thanksgiving to well up in our hearts. Do we not see the greatest act of mercy Paul could have received come to him in this? What a glorious violation. What a beautiful, hostile takeover. I rejoice in this account because that's my story too. It had to be. It had to be. If God did not choose me, I simply, guys, would not be standing here in front of you today. I never at all in my life decided to sit on my bed one day and go, you know what, what I'm doing ain't working. I need a new heart and I need my sins forgiven. God had to corral me and lasso me. It's all so clear now in hindsight. It was a total ambush. Every single bit of it. (laughs) Praise God. So that I would sit still in the shadow of His glory, in the shadow of His gospel, and become undone. He did it. Jesus knocked me off my butt, just like Paul, minus the light show. I mean, there was a light show, but it didn't look like this, I don't think. And minus the three days of not eating, because I would never do something like that, you know. And now I'm forever his. Notice Saul's posture here, too. It's pretty cool. Saul starts off riding atop a donkey. He's high, he's proud, he's authoritative, he's ready to conquer more Christians. Right? Mounted, confident, arrogant, bold. But when Jesus is done with him, he's surprised, scared, humbled, and in the dust. He is dismounted. He was taken from high in every way to low in every way because that's what meeting Jesus looks like. 
If we've truly had an encounter with Jesus through the gospel, we will be taken all the way to the basement with our pride and our arrogance and, yes, even our self-righteousness and our good works. If we have had a real encounter with Jesus, we will fully experience bankruptcy before we get to see the inside of the vault, spiritually speaking. But it's in that low place that the heavens open to us, guys. It's in that place down in the dirt where we see the heavens open. Paul's in the dirt, but he is about to get a promotion. You'll have to come back next week for the promotion. <laughs> I'm trying to think to myself, like, like, what can we take away from this this week? Is there something I can give you to hold on to? And, and I think there is. I, I think there's something so clear here that uh, I almost missed it. <laughs> Your testimonies matter. Do you guys know that? Your testimonies, your stories matter. Our stories of redemption do not all look like Paul's, right? They are no less real. And the truth is, Paul's don't look like ours. Betty's jealous. God has met with each of us individually in a very special way, and it matters. What's cool is that even though we don't share the same story as Paul, we all share the same conversion. We share the very same conversion. Here's what the verses in this passage really say when you boil them down. Okay? Here's what we're being taught here. We lived against Jesus. We met Jesus. We live for Jesus. That's what we see. We lived against Jesus. We met Jesus. We lived for Jesus. That's what this is. This is what it looks like when Jesus has an appointment with somebody over their soul. No matter how exactly it went down. Some of you know my mom, right? Have you ever heard her testimony? I'm going to tell you. She was born into a loving Christian home. From the time that she was born, she attended church three times a week, every week. She read her Bible from the time that she could read. At five, she realized she was a sinner. And she realized that Jesus was her only hope. At five. Never smoked, never drank, never cussed, never slept around. All those things, right? My testimony doesn't look like that. <laughs> but I see Jesus in my mom's testimony. Here's the point. It doesn't have to be as big and bold and ugly and messy as we sometimes think it has to be for it to be real. Because our Bibles tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our Bibles tell us that if we have fallen short in one point of the law, we've blown it all. You know what that means? The playing field is leveled. We are all in trouble. Whether you grew up since you were a little kid and met Jesus at five, or whether you lived your whole life in the gutter, hurting other people and angry at God, we all need Christ desperately. He's our only hope. That story of my mom's matters. I love it. I love thinking that my mom didn't have to, 
that she, that she got to spend that much more time of her life glorifying God with her life. Like, that's a cool thing. Pretty neat. Our stories matter. My mom is a sinner that's saved by grace just like me, and she knows it. It doesn't matter how bad she was. It doesn't matter how far down she went. The money is in that she knew she had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and needed saving. Do you know your story? Because some of you haven't even thought about it. And guys, this is one of the best evangelistic tools that you have when you go out these doors. It's daunting to think about evangelizing. You know, a lot of it's scary for us because we're thinking, I don't know my Bible. I don't have things memorized. Well, you, you probably know your story, which is real. Like you could probably tell that to somebody. I would recommend learning it if you don't know it. Think about it this week. In fact, get out a pen and paper. Here's your homework. And write down your story. And then work on editing what matters there into 30 seconds or a minute. Because most people aren't going to stick around when you bump into them for a 10-minute, half-hour-long story of your life. It can be done powerfully and clearly in a short amount of time. So it's a good thing to know. Do that this week if you haven't done it already. What is your story? Our testimonies matter because it puts on display the power of God unto salvation. Right? We serve a big God, guys. When you look at a text like this, is there anything He can't do? Is there anyone He can't save? Is there anyone so far off that He can't reach them? The answer is no. Paul was the worst of the worst. And he said, I'm going to take you as my biggest enemy and make you my biggest fan. And Paul went forward and turned the world upside down. It makes no sense. It's the grace of God through the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much, no matter where we come from, no matter what our background looks like, thank you for taking care of the parts that we were unable to. Thank you for making a way for us to know you, to be reconciled to you. Thank you, God, for paying the penalty that our sins may be forgiven, that we may be fully justified and sanctified in your righteousness. Thank you for making us righteous now. Thank you for declaring us righteous through Christ. Help us, God, to take the message you've given us of the way to the world around us that desperately needs it. Help us to rely and be confident on you knowing, just like we saw today, that you save, not us. We don't have to have everything bolted down and buttoned up perfectly. We won't. But you, God, are the one able to penetrate hearts and make them yours. And so we ask you, God, to infuse us with a boldness and a confidence that comes in knowing that you go ahead of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.